0: on um, the legal, ethical, and practical issues behind the historic house Uppsala. Um, just a show of hands quickly, how many of you are associated with a historic house or a historic house museum? Okay. Um, before we get started, I just want to underline the point. Um, well, we're here to discuss the lessons that we've learned in the four-plus years that this project has been going on um, and underline the point that you know, the National Trust for Historic Preservation and Cliveden support, we believe in the preservation of historic buildings and we believe in the historic house museum model but we don't necessarily will be acknowledged that the historic house museum model is not the, always the best choice for stewardship and long-term preservation of a building. So we're not advocating the end of all historic house museums in any way, shape, or form. Um, join with me today our <laughs> our uh, <laughs> are two of my colleagues, um, Tom Mays, the Vice President and Senior Counsel of the, from the National Trust, and David Young, the Executive Director of Cliveden, Inc., our co-stewardship partner um, at the at Cliveden in Germantown. Um, we are just, and I'm Carrie Villard, the Associate Director of Museum Collections for the National Trust. And we are just three of many people that have been involved in this project, um, both National Trust staff, Cliveden, Inc. staff, both of our boards, um, interns, volunteers, consultants, um, outside counsel, it's been a big team that's made this all happen. And so with that, I'm gonna turn it over to David.
1: Thank you, and I just wanna say uh, I'm glad you're able to join us. Um, And I wanna thank uh, Carrie and Tom for the opportunity to present with colleagues that I work with and admire greatly and also to thank you for the work you do to give life to history in your own communities. Um, how many of you have been to Cliveden? How many of you have been to Cliveden? <laughs> it's really Cliveden on Cliveden Street, and it's one of America's great historic sites. It was built over four years, completed in 1767 as the summer mansion to the wealthy Chew family. It was the scene of the Battle of Germantown on October 4, 1777, one of the largest battles of the Revolution. It could be heard 60 miles away. The house still bears marks from that battle, including blood on the wall. Uh, It was donated to the National Trust by the Chu family in 1972, and it became a house museum open to the public in 1973. It's been the steward of Uppsala. Cliveden Incorporated has been the steward of Uppsala, which is across the street, directly across the street from Cliveden since 2005. Both Cliveden and Uppsala are located in the historic Germantown neighborhood of Philadelphia, a neighborhood blessed with 16 historic sites, multiple community organizations. I think at last count there were 39 community organizations officially registered with the city. There are 11 Community Development Corporations. Cliveden is in the 19144 zip code. Uppsala is in the 19 zip code. It has a different state representative and a state senator that's different from Cliveden. We have a saying at Cliveden, everything is three times more complicated. Let me tell you how it got to be so with Uppsala. Upsala is a 1798 mansion. It's gorgeous and it is built on two and a half acres across the street from Cliveden's five and a half acres. It was saved after a 1942 house fire. It was basically uh, a, a home from 1798 until 1930 and in a derelict state, teenage boys set the building on fire in 1942. The community stepped in to save it, people like Francis Ann Wister and the Society for the Preservation of Landmarks in Philadelphia saved it and prevented it from being torn down and becoming a, a grocery store. So it was a community effort that saved the building, and of course what do you do with an old house that you save? You turn it into a house museum. So from 1942 until 2000, 2001, Uppsala operated as a house museum, but it was a clubby group little outreach, uh, board that was aging, uh, visitation annually in this century was in single digits. It's a beautiful home and it was a lovely place to have your wedding or your private affair, but the um, organization did very little community engagement. In fact, the words didn't really exist at the time. But the question is, upon the merger was the issue with Upsala? a failure as a house museum or a preservation success because the merger helped keep it a sustained building. The first sentence of the mission of Uppsala, the Uppsala Foundation, was to preserve Uppsala. So it's both Cliveden and Cliveden, a failed house museum and a success story that it was still standing. It's always been zoned residential including its 60 years as a house museum. So when Upsala merged with Cliveden in a three- or four-year process that became official in February of 2005. The thought was to make Upsala the visitor center for Cliveden, and uh, the idea was to make Upsala uh, sort of a welcome center for Cliveden's 4,000 visitors, which seemed a little odd to invest four million dollars, which is what the plan called for, to turn an old house. Uh, 12,000 square feet into a visitor center for so little visitation. And the National Trust for Historic Preservation at the time prompted Cliveden's board to consider what would Cliveden be if it didn't think in terms of visitation. Why worry about visitation when you need a better footprint in the community, and a more active role? The concern being with 16 house museums and historic sites in Germantown, and there, there have been ones that have been closed since the 1990s, like Loudon, further down Germantown Avenue, how to avoid the travails that befell the Uppsala Foundation. And Cliveden changed its mission as a result to become more about the community than about the visitor, to be a verb in a neighborhood where history can really play a lead role. Germantown is 335 years old. And uh, George Washington lived there, a revolutionary battle. There's an underground railroad station uh, down the street from Uppsala. So the change in mission meant that Cliveden uh, really became something else in the process of its merger with Uppsala. Uh, The Pew Center for Arts and Heritage supported the planning process to bring the two organizations together and officially dissolve, or so we thought, the Uppsala Foundation. But essentially, the merger challenged Cliveden to rethink its, uh, its uh, mission and away from visitor base to engage the community, which becomes essential to how we brought Upsala to the next generation of stewardship. Um, the house, as I mentioned, uh, burned in the 1940s. You see the grand staircase uh, in, the vis- uh, in the image there. You also see some of the restoration work that's been done recently with the high lift there that comes in handy in a slide I'll show you later. Uh, in effect, Upsala for Cliveden was uh, an opportunity to show how to rethink historic houses. So we tried several different models, but we also maintained as our top priority preserving the building. The Upsala Foundation uh, was a kind of perfect storm of deferred maintenance, lack of funding, no plan, little engagement, declining resource base, dot, dot, dot. So inheriting this meant much of our preservation work at Cliveden, a site with three full-time staff and five buildings, was trained on Upsala rather than the four buildings on the Cliveden side of the street. But among the projects we did um, with uh, uh, in our stewardship Uh, were to address the architectural archaeology which gave us a report from Penn graduate program in Historic Preservation, the University of Pennsylvania. We did an exterior restoration project and we essentially had uh, invested with the help of several funders including the National Trust for Historic Preservation about half a million dollars in stewardship maintenance and preservation. Why would it come to Cliveden and the National Trust? Well the idea for the Upsala Board, which included some people connected to Cliveden, the idea for the Upsala Board was to get it connected under the National Trust's umbrella to ensure its preservation. And if it was connected with Cliveden, there would be a better chance for it to be truly preserved. So the stewardship ethic was really a motivator for the merger, even though it didn't turn out as we had hoped. Upsala is built in 1798 high-style federal architecture. It's an unknown architect. We don't know little about the craftsman. It's 12,000 square feet on two acres. It's on the National Register. It's contributing to the two-mile National Colonial Historic Landmark District that is Germantown Avenue, the longest such district in the country. Take that, Boston. Uh, And it is listed on the uh, Philadelphia Register of Historic Properties, which guarantees the saving of the building. Uh, All these are important preservation uh, designations. But they didn't necessarily guarantee uh, long sustainability. Clibden tried every trick in the book to make the building sing. Um, We looked at a variety of options, commercial uses. We kicked the tires on a cafe and a bookstore, concert facility. Uh, uh, Non-profit tenants were there for several years, including the Northeast Field Office of the National Trust in the Mid-Atlantic. We had a non-profit. Cliveden founded a business improvement district for Germantown Avenue. It was headquartered in Uppsala. They paid nominal rent, $400 a month or so. We looked at and even got a grant to study the idea of room-in-room storage for the Cliveden and Uppsala collections. We looked at an archaeology station for historic Germantown. As historic as it is, it's woefully understudied in terms of its archaeological uh, resources. In fact, Cliveden is a live archaeological battlefield that has had very little uh, testing, phase one or phase two. And then the recession hit in 2008 and 2009. Uh, Not only did endowments tank, but funders changed their priorities, and there was very little in the uh, way of preservation resources uh, to continue the stewardship work at Uppsala that was so critical. The wood was shot. Uh, It was just months uh, really away from being completely gone. There was asbestos, there was mold. It was really beyond Cliveden's capacity. This was Uh, just a a treasure trove of complicated preservation, fun stuff, asbestos. um, The the high lift came in handy because the entire soffit was a beehive on the third floor. That was a $1,500 fix. Good thing Wick has a bee person, so we got that person up there to take the queen away. The operating costs amounted to $20,000 a year to cut the two and a half acres and to take care of the uh, 12,000 square feet. Um, And uh, that's not even counting the staff time. Um, So the landlord role just wasn't working for Cliveden, uh, and it couldn't really sustain the financial environment for another charity, another charitable organization. So we started to consider a a different steward and a different owner. And on November 13th, one of our board members, in fact, the gentleman who was on the Upsala board who who helped instigate the merger with Cliveden, was approached by an individual who was preservation minded as a collection of colonial maps and furniture. And this fellow was from Germantown, had preservation roots, very philanthropic. And he wanted, was interested if it could be bought as a private residence and he would make it his site to entertain his family, it would entertain visitors and so on, he had the resources. But in um, looking at it, it really couldn't be a typical real estate transaction because it had come to the National Trust as a nonprofit merging with another nonprofit to guarantee the preservation mission of Uppsala. And so this meant we couldn't just sell it uh, uh, in a way that we might traditionally do that. Meanwhile, there had been a lot of issues in our own community about uh, sweetheart deals among preservation organizations. Um, you know, um, um, little uh, um, backroom things that had been done for the preservation of a house and the guarantee of an easement. And we really wanted transparency. The, The Cliveden ethic is very much involving the community. In my work to understand what happened to the Uppsala Foundation, it was clear that in the merger, no one used words like community engagement. No one asked the neighbors what they wanted the building to be. No one asked the neighborhood associations, all of them, or the community development corporations, any of them, what do we want Upsala to be? So the buy-in was essential. And the good thing is Cliveden has a, a, a program series that's been essential to the expansion of our interpretation. Because Cliveden isn't just our shrine to the revolution, it's also a home to a large slave-owning family. The Chu family were among the largest slave owners in Pennsylvania, the Quaker state the city of brotherly love, um, the city that gave the world the Declaration of Independence, had 6% of its population enslaved at the time that document was written. And Clifton used a community conversations model to help tell the stories and make sense of these plantation records. And we've been doing that since 2010 to help our interpretive planning. And in fact, we've had 36 conversations with our community to address community issues. So it became a helpful program model to ask the community, finally, what do you want Uppsala to be? So in 2013, we had a Cleveland conversation about the future of Uppsala in the Uppsala building with the Penn graduate students describing what they found out, soliciting some input, taking us through the nuts and bolts of their 900-page report, which amounted to a historic structures report. It was conducted under the leadership of Christine Carter and John Milner, of Milner associate architects, prominent preservation architects. And from that Cliveden conversation about Uppsala we got great ideas about how to make another house museum. Could we have a banking museum in Germantown? Could we have another nonprofit for a community garden or a training facility for preservation uh, uh, skills training for instance? All great ideas that would keep Cliveden in the landlord business. put into a strained community struggling for its existing 16 historic properties, another house museum, another on the charity model. And from those conversations, uh, these suggestions were okay but not great. Um, We had another Cliveden conversation in 2015 uh, that helped to um, uh, engage uh, the larger question of, well, can we have other options beyond not just the house museum, but also to just get a sense of the community's comfort level if we were to put it up for sale or to find another steward entirely. So we got great ideas, an architecture office, another idea for a welcome center. Lots of the ideas came pitched as, well, have you ever thought of? And in fact, we had. And we had kicked the tires on many, many issues. So uh, the community discussions then involved me going to the neighborhood associations and getting a temperature check in East Mount Airy, in West Mount Airy, in West Central Germantown, in East Central Germantown, in all the neighborhood associations. And every one of the public officials' office, I would bring our little banners about the history of Uppsala and say, here's what we're thinking of doing. What do you think? And that intentional process was key for us because it meant a kind of transparency that had been lacking we felt in the 2003-2004 discussions but what's more um, Cliveden really uh, has changed its whole approach on the sense of co-authorship and a co-ownership from the entire community so how could we decide Upsala without that community input and we you know discuss with the regulatory agencies we had initial calls with some of the legal officials and we approached these discussions with two aims find someone who could give Upsala the love that was beyond Cliveden's ability and to get out of the landlord business but also to bring the community into the discussion and to get some sense of buy-in but very few good ideas came from the conversations that had not been tried before and very few proved to be workable in any way without a godfather or winning the lottery. So after October 2016, a for sale sign appeared after we reenacted the battle uh, on uh, the property, and um, I'm happy to say after uh, we closed on it in April, uh, on April 24 in uh, 2017, a week later, the new owners opened up the property for Mount Airy Day, as, as we always do the first Saturday of October. And what I mean to say about that is on, on April 24th, I turned over 28 keys to new owners of Uppsala, not with a sense of relief, but with a sense of satisfaction that we had done this the right way and that we had used an Upsala approach that was involving the community and finding somebody who could give it the love that we could not. And I'm gonna pass it over now to Tom Mays, who's gonna discuss with you the very intentional process of building out concentric circles in order to make that happen legally and through the various um, steps that we had to take. Thank you. Thank you, David.
2: so, the legal issues. David's described this public process. And at the outset, let me say that there are many legal issues here at Upsala, and I'm going to go through some of them specifically. But before I delve into them, I want to make it clear that although the legal issues are distinct, they're also completely tied to the transparency issues, the ethical issues, and the public engagement that Cliveden did in cooperation with the National Trust. And we would not be able to have been successful on the legal issues across the board, most likely, had we not gone through that transparent um, public process. And I'll, I'll explain a little bit more about that as we go through it. The other thing that, that is really key to remember is that I don't think we would have been successful on the legal issues if we hadn't been motivated to do the right thing to begin with. And there are two key aspects to that in my mind. One was that we were motivated by what was in the best interest of protecting Upsala. We were always committed to protecting Upsala one way or the other. And the next one has to do with Money, really, we talked about this uh, this morning a little bit. There are legal issues, but one of the key questions everybody who had to give approval would ask at the outset is, if you're going to sell it, what happens to the proceeds? So saying at the outset, consistently, what's going to happen to the proceeds in a way where that money remains in charitable use and for the benefit of the community, was critically important to it. So these legal issues and ethical issues and pragmatic issues are completely intertwined, as is the, the public process that we went through. So here's my quick bullet list of some of the legal issues we had to deal with. First, there was just the overall decision to dissolve the Upsala Foundation. And that occurred, as David said, the property was transferred in 2005. Carrie said our process uh, started in 2011. That was really the second legal process. The first legal process started in 2002, 2003, when they were talking about what, what would happen with the, uh, with the Uppsala Foundation, and I'll go into more detail about that. Then there was the actual process of dissolving the foundation, which required court approval. Um, following that, David described all the options they look at. they looked through to try to find a new use for Uppsala. And that led, ultimately, those conversations around Uppsala led to a request for uh, proposals process that was a public process. And when that didn't pan out the way we wanted it to, it led to the real estate sale. All of this uh, was premised on the idea that we'd protect the property with a historic preservation easement. Um, and then there were the legal issues around collections uh, disposition, which Carrie will talk about a little bit. All of it culminating in our request for approval to the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, and after that approval, a sale subject to easements to new owners. So uh, that's that's the general process. The dissolution of the Upsala Foundation was a key legal beginning point for us, uh, because in Pennsylvania, it is uh, required that if a charity is being dissolved, uh, it has to be approved by the probate court essentially, which in Pennsylvania is called the Orphan's Court. And it's a formal process. It typically requires consultation with the Attorney General's office, the approval of the, hopefully, the approval of the Attorney General's office, and then a formal court action. And there were key aspects to that process. One was all the parties were in agreement that this was the right initial solution, the dissolution of the Uppsala Foundation, a transfer to the National Trust with management by Cliveden so that this property could be preserved in the the future. So at the outset, we had agreement among all the parties. And virtually no... uh, even expression of concern from the community about that. So everybody was in agreement about it to begin with. And we ultimately went through that legal process and and got approval. What I want to emphasize for those of you who are thinking about a change for a historic property anywhere else in the country is this process is often governed by state law. This happened to be in Pennsylvania, which has a fairly careful review process and has a statute that governs this. But not all states will have this. Some will simply have principles of law. So at the outset of the investigation of what you need to do with a property, the first question uh, from a legal point of view is, is it restricted? Is it held in trust? What are the legal restrictions that we are subject to now that we have to grapple with as we try to think through what the next use for the property will be? And that's going to be different for each property and different for each state. And I get questions about this all the time on the phone. And I'll just say that I can't tell you how many times people have called me and they don't know whether their property is subject to legal restrictions or not. Point number one is, look into that at the outset. I, to the mic
1: a bit more too. I'm sorry. Speaking to the mic a little for the record. Okay, sure. And I just wanted to add one thing, too, was it also involved me getting in touch with Uppsala board members who I'd never met, calling them out of the blue, bringing people up to speed on this. So there's also, this takes a lot of time and intentional communication.
2: Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. So um, as David described, we went through these conversations, and coming out of the conversation were all these ideas, which were vetted to some degree, but it left a question mark in our minds about what we should do next to make sure we had done appropriate due diligence to make sure there was not some other steward who at the last minute was going to step forward and say, we, were we would have been willing to take on Upsala and take care of it, and here's our proposed use. So we used a technique that's been used in other places in the country uh, where we issued a request for proposals to the community to say, we're looking for a new steward for Upsala." Uh, and we're, we're welcome to receive any proposal that is uh, sustainable, that will preserve Upsala, uh, and that will provide for its ongoing care and maintenance. Uh, and we issued this uh, publicly. We, we, it was widely distributed. It was marketed in magazines and online and through the trust website and things like that. We did get proposals. And we got proposals from a variety of sources, both private individuals and other nonprofits. But frankly, we were disappointed in the proposals. Uh, most of them did not actually propose us an even soon rehabilitation of Uppsala. And most of them did not seem to have the financial resources to actually care for Upsala in the long term nor did they even have the resources to endow the easement that we were going to place on the property. So we were quite disappointed in the, in the proposals that we got in. We did not, however, reject them all. We, we considered them and we put them in abeyance, and Cliveden's board in particular, encouraged us to go to the real estate market to see if there might be somebody else out there that we were missing because before we jumped into one of these proposals from the request for proposal process. So we decided that we would do that, and I'm going to come back to that real estate process. But before I... I do that, I wanted to quickly go through some of the easement aspects to this because this request for proposal was uh, subject to a historic preservation easement. The National Trust does not transfer historic properties out of its possession without protecting it. So we always intended to put a historic preservation easement in place and we made it uh, a condition of the request for proposals and ultimately the sale. So I imagine, I know that many of you in the room know what easements are, but historic preservation easements are basically legally binding restrictions on the property that are enforced by a nonprofit, in this case, the National Trust. The National Trust holds about 130 easements across the country, and we actively monitor them and enforce the easements over time. They're very flexible documents, and they provide for uh, protection across the board, and they can even be tweaked. So for instance, they protect the exterior, the landscape, the interior, and in this case, public access. So on the exterior we crafted the easement so it protected all four walls of the building including the L at the back and the additions that had been built over time. Um, We also protected the interior. So we protected the entire floor plan of the first and second floors of the main block of the building as well as certain aspects of the L. We protected woodwork, plaster, um, uh, floorboards, walls, Uh, almost any detail that contributed to the historic character. Uppsala was fortunate, however, in that it had this L where there had been kitchens and bathrooms in the past. So we were very clear that there was a lot of flexibility in those spaces for people to modernize the building and to put in contemporary kitchens and bathrooms. And, uh, air and air conditioning and and we got a lot of questions about that and we had to spend a lot of time with potential proposers and with potential purchasers ultimately explaining how the easement worked and getting them comfortable with the idea that we were not going to prevent them from putting in a bathroom that would allow somebody to actually live in the house or use the house for whatever purpose. So so we put that in place. One of the special things I wanted to highlight was the public access requirement. We strengthened our standard public access requirement for Uppsala in part because of the Battle of Germantown reenactment that happens there every year. And part of the Battle of Germantown happened on the grounds of Uppsala. The house didn't exist at the time of the battle, but part of the reenactment happens there. It's happened there for many years. And so we required that a future owner would be willing, upon our request, to allow that reenactment to happen. So I show this Landscape plan where we actually drew a circle and said this is the area where the reenactment uh, can happen. So it's defined and understood by by the new property owners. So that generally is the easement protection that that we put in place as a part of this legal process. And that was true for both the RFP and for the sale. David.
1: And what this means is someone taking on Upsala had to agree to put three cannons on the front lawn the first Saturday of every October, allow a beer garden, pony rides, this kind of public access for a reenactment involving 400 reenactors closing off a major artery in a dense urban neighborhood.
2: Isn't that an excellent question? So, uh, these owners did not feel strongly about that. Typically, the um, uh, liability, they have good insurance. Typically, that liability would be done by the entity holding the event. So, we just went through a long process of working with the owners to figure out exactly that question, and it was successfully figured out, but great question. So yes, go ahead. Sorry. Um, yeah.
0: Is there did, when you say public access, not to the home, just to
2: the grounds? So, so we also, in our standard EISMA, provide some level of public access to the home. Where typically we require a property owner to open their home, if the interior is protected, to open it upon our request for one or two days a year. So for instance, if they participate in a community house tour, that satisfies that requirement. And we also, uh, in our standard provision, require them to allow us to publicize the interior so people can have digital access to it and can see it in that way. And there was a question back at the back, too. Miss, did you have something? Okay, good, great. yes it's written into the easement sometimes we'll have a separate document that's a rehabilitation agreement that requires them to rehabilitate the property within a certain period of time and specifies how Um, and um, carl Nolds in the audience too historic new england has a very um, uh, extensive easement program as well for the
0: purpose of the recording if you could repeat the Thank
2: you, thank you. So that was a question about public access and whether it's written into the document. Um, So I wanted to highlight a couple things about the real estate sale. So I said we were disappointed in the uh, proposals that came in from the request for proposals and therefore turned to the real estate market to see what that would produce. And in doing that, the first thing we had to do was hire a realtor. And the trust typically will go to the market and ask for proposals from realtors as a part of that process. In Germantown, we had already worked with a realtor, and there are two things I want to emphasize. One is you need to hire a realtor, if at all possible, who has expertise in selling and marketing historic properties, and if at all possible, with restrictions or historic preservation easements. It's very tricky to explain these requirements to potential new owners, and having a realtor who's experienced in doing that, knowing when to explain something and when not to, is critically important. So we were fortunate in having this lovely lady here, Louise D'Alessandro, who was our realtor. Um, There are also a couple provisions of the listing agreement that we always look for and change. One is that we make it absolutely clear that the sale is subject to the historic preservation easement. It's not a negotiating point. It's a deal breaker, so it has to be subject to the uh, easement, and typically we attach the easement to the listing agreement or a detailed summary of the easement. In this case, and in all cases actually, when we're selling properties, many listing agreements will say, if I bring you a buyer at this price, then you owe me the commission, regardless of whether you want that buyer or not. Our listing agreements always say the sale is subject to our approval, and in this case, the approval of Clifton Incorporated, and also the Attorney General of Pennsylvania. So we did that process. David.
1: And I wanna say, the conversation, and by the way, Tom and the Vice President of the Historic, uh, the Vice President for Historic Sites, Catherine Malone-France and I, all three of us had a weekly standing call on Thursday from the spring of 2014 to the spring of 2017. And in the summer of 2016, when we invited this conversation with the realtor, the right realtor, changed the entire tone of the conversation from one of internal echo chamber about the malaise and house museums and oh, there's no, the decline. The realtor brought so much positive energy to the process. Wow, this'll be great, these easements, it'll be attract the right buyer. Cannons on the lawn, there'll be a bidding war. (laughs) I'm not kidding, and it just, it, 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 it changed the narrative from one of decline to one of opportunity.
2: She was great um so ultimately through this process and and i'm sort of skipping over the weekly calls also as the offers started to come in we had to answer people's questions at the same time we were doing an appeal of the property taxes we were doing physical upgrades to the property getting rid of liability issues fixing things that needed to be fixed so there's a huge body of things that happened until ultimately we got nine offers on the property, some above the list price. And we did a thorough assessment of those offers. There's a Excel spreadsheet that goes through our factors and I highlighted some of them here that allowed us to assess the the offers. Whether the buyer had experience with historic properties, whether they understood and accepted the terms of the easement, whether they had the resources to do the work, not only financially, but also the intellectual capacities to do it, the sort of knowledge and awareness of historic properties, what their plans were and what the proposed work would be and what the proposed use would be, and finally, price. So we had a committee of people assess those and make notes and ultimately we all settled on a unanimous um, answer about who we would recommend for approval. Normally when you reach that point at a real estate sale, you sign the contract and you're done. But we were not quite there because we had to go get the approval of the Attorney General's office. So uh, we created a package that David and I were talking about this morning. We can't remember if it was 250 pages or 350 pages of materials that we submitted to The attorney general's office for approval basically going through the entire process describing the public process describing the way we acquired the property to begin with uh, going through the rfp process and the responses there why we did not accept those responses the listing agreement the easement um, the assessment we did of the nine offers and then what would happen to the proceeds and the proceeds were going to be used to repay our direct expenses but not our staff cost, to fund an endowment to ensure that the easement would always be uh, enforced, and then with all the other proceeds to go for the benefit of the preservation of Cliveden. And that was a key key factor as a part of that. And we also asked the Attorney General not to require us to go back to the probate court again but to simply give their consent. And we were willing to take the risk that that if any questions arose, we could then do that process if necessary, but we didn't want to stretch out the time and expense of of this process, which had already taken between five and 15 years, depending on when you start counting. And ultimately, they gave their consent, and they, really congratulated us on the thorough public process that we had done and the public process and the ethical stance we had behind that were absolutely critical to getting their approval to begin with david the
1: only thing i would add to tom's excellent summary is that report we delivered to the attorney general had to really foreground the changed circumstances that explained why Cliveden couldn't handle it anymore and couldn't give it the love. And that was partly financial, our small staff, uh, diminished resources in the preservation community, funders, changing priorities, so on and so forth.
2: Absolutely. Um, and then ultimately we sold it to these this, uh, these two lovely people who uh, from all reports have been fantastic stewards and David can talk to you more about that. but. Uh, They accepted the terms of the easement, they've been very welcoming. Uh, The easement endowment was funded, Um, The costs have been reimbursed, and funds are already being used at Cliveden to help preserve Cliveden. And I'll be happy to answer questions afterwards, but let me turn it over to Carrie to talk about the collections.
0: Thank you. Um, while they were all busy with their weekly meetings, I was having close to weekly calls with the um, education director at Cliveden, who has the responsibility for the oversight of the collections at both Cliveden and at Uppsala. This group of collections was came with the property when it was transferred from the Uppsala Foundation. It was never a collection that the National Trust or Cliveden Inc. added to, so it was a, a a finite discrete collection that came with the house. It was never fully um, renumbered and, and accessioned into the National Trust collection. And the record keeping that was transferred, and remember, as David explained, this was sort of a, a ladies who lunch volunteer group, um, you know, not professionalized. So uh, when Carol, and the education director, consulted the records. It was a cardboard box that had very, you know, very minimal record keeping, and added to all of this was the time pressure that we both felt, not knowing exactly what was where where they were with the transfer or sale of the house, and no, knowing that we had these objects in the building and we might need to, um, you know. Move them out at any given time, and Cliveden um, doesn't didn't have the space in their building across the street to absorb these objects if they had to be moved out. So we we had this this pressure to, to get the process rolling. But at the same time, we know we knew it had to be a thoughtful and ethical process. Um, you know, letter of the law of our collections management policy, um, and that we we committed to following that, and we also wanted to make sure that as much got transferred to other institutions within Germantown and the greater Philadelphia area as possible. Part of this is because in 2009-2010 there was already a deaccession of Uppsala objects that had limited had no provenance and clear title. So the easy deaccession had already happened and what we were left with were the Johnson family objects, the things connected to the family that that built Uppsala or the problem children that had no documentation and no clear title. So we were, these were the ones that you hope, you know, when you go to work and someone, you, you hope no one ever asks you about those, because you don't ever want to have to deal with them. It's, uh, it, you know, but we, ha- we had to, you know, we, we, the process wasn't going to be easy, but we knew we had to deal with it. And we also knew we had old loans, um, you know, where we have the, the slip of paper that said, Mrs. Smith, dropped this off, it's on loan and That's all you knew, um, and restricted gifts. We're, we're still dealing with uh, bequest for objects to be used in a named room. You know, these this this barometer will be displayed in the Smith room. Um, fortunately, working with Tom and having in-house counsel is amazing. From other museums I've worked in, when you don't have this the, the legal expertise, is if we know that. The object has been in our possession for a period of time. It is of minimal monetary value, and we may not have documentation on it. We make the assumption, it's a risk management, you know, kind of legal um, decision, that we own it. And if anyone should ever make a claim on it, they would have to produce the paperwork that says it is actually theirs. Um, So working from that, clearing that hurdle was was an important step. Um, in being able to make this deaccession happen. But still, the process, um, and I just, I had fun with this, putting it, seeing how small the font had to get to fit it on one slide. Um, but the first two triggering moments for the for the process were completing a collections inventory, because we really didn't, we knew, it was pretty clear that what was in Uppsala counted as the Uppsala collection, because it hadn't been moved out. But we didn't have a, a real thorough inventory of wall to wall of what was in the what was in the building and we also ne- needed to look at and revise the uh, scope of collections for Cliveden to sh- to show to really take a look after the inventory was done to make sure that nothing in Upsala could have an interpretive benefit to the interpretation that happened at Cliveden and the the scope of collections had last been drafted in 2009 so it wasn't completely out of date but we just wanted to take another you know, going back to the thoughtful process, another look at that scope to see if there was potential for use of the objects in Uppsala. And then from there, it was the paperwork for the deaccession, the physical packing and moving, the various levels of approval that we needed to get. And to be honest, the house has been sold, the happy couple is living there, but we're still dealing with the deaccession. We're, we were not completed yet. We're still at the We've started instituting transfers, but we're still completing our legal review and uh, nothing has gone to sale yet. So we're still, our goal is the end of the year, but but we'll see. Um, and the deaccession request for, from the National Trust is spelled out in our collections management policy. For a typical deaccessioning request, it could be I guess we like page counts, but it could be about 100-plus pages for each request. And so this was, was a similar, um, similar request that we had to prepare. And it's a, a form with a detailed description of the objects, a memo giving your intellectual rationale for needing to deaccession, and that includes referencing your scope of collections. Um, our board requires a professional appraisal or a statement of value, um, and I can go into more detail of, of their rationale on that. Um, I will say that the appraisal that we got done, just to give you a frame of reference for the upsala objects, if it were all to be sold at um, at auction was about forty seven hundred dollars. so we're not looking at no one's no one was uh, going after this for a windfall. Um, and all of that mo- all of the money from any sale that happens will go into a restricted collections fund that can only be used to benefit the the, uh, the collection at Cliveden. Um, and then our recommendation for proposed method of disposal, and in, in this case, we really were saying we will we we'll work to transfer as much as possible. One thing we did in the request to aid in the approval was to say, if these transfers can't happen, the, the collections committee and the board approved they would then be moved to sale, so we wouldn't have to go back with another proposed method. Um, and then title clearance, and usually we do the title clearance before um, the deaccession request goes through the board, but the title issues were so are complicated with the old loans and bequests that we actually, the deaccessions were all approved pending title clearance. So documentation, creating a paper trail, moving beyond that cardboard box. Um, many of the records we created are the first and only records that these objects have. Um, another, approach we took was to treat everything in a collections area of the, of the house as a potential object. So there was one, um, 1980s reproduction puzzle that had never been opened that I know was never meant to be accession, but because it was in one of these areas, we're, we're treating it as a collections object. Um, so those are our, our, found in collections objects for this and so we you know massive binders organizing all of this many spreadsheets um, just to try to keep track of everything and to create the paper trail for the next generation of, of curators and collections managers so going into this there were more costs that i hadn't anticipated for the collections um, end of things one of them was a the professional appraisal we had to pay for that um, and then finally, we, we reached a, a good point where we, we said, we have to move these out of the house so that the, the work, the renovation work that had to happen and the, the potential sale of the home could happen and the collections wouldn't be there holding it back from happening. So we moved it to offsite storage where it still is. Um, So that and that's an additional cost, which you know I was joking with David. He's probably spent more in offsite storage than he could ever realize in the sale of these objects. So we're spending more money on these objects than um, the market would bring. Um, But that's the ethical and and, um, the ethical way of handling it, and so we're 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 good with that. And then legal assistance, if you were to do this and you didn't have your own counsel. We had to research Pennsylvania's museum property law. They didn't. That didn't apply in this case. Muse- Pennsylvania's law only re- applied at Pennsylvania museum. Pennsylvania-run museums. Um, so we. But we still had to research into that, and then the staff time. It, it has taken, more staff time than we ever thought possible. I mean, beyond just the sale, but just the collections too. Um, we are. We're still working on it. And so with that, we have a few minutes. Um, and our emails are here. We're, we're happy to, you can reach out to us at any point with any questions or refer others to us if you know of other organizations going through this. We're happy to, happy to help.
1: Are there questions? Because as I bring the microphone around, I'd like to share with you our placards for the battle that happens a month from today. And I also want you to know that the new owners are so cool that that board member I mentioned to you who had uh, originally instigated the merger to ensure the preservation of Uppsala passed away last week and the new owners sent me flowers. Um, And they understood the importance of the Ashers in the entire preservation and their sponsors of the event. So with that commercial announcement, let's get to the Thanks, David.
2: Uh, Just a a technical question, uh, Tom, I guess for you. Were there actual restrictions on the sale of the house in the dissolution or in the court's approval of the dissolution, or were there no actual restrictions on the sale of the house, and you were just treating that from a moral and procedural reason as if there were? That's a a great question. there were when upsala was dissolved the deed of transfer that was done and the court's approval did not impose any additional restrictions so the property had been held in trust by the upsala foundation when the upsala foundation was dissolved and it was transferred it was simply treated as charitable property that was going from one charity to another and it was not restricted. And that allowed us to not have to go back to the probate court. Had there been an actual restriction in the deed, we would have had to go to the probate court, so the attorney general's approval alone in Pennsylvania would not have been sufficient, I don't think. And you did feel that even though there were no restrictions then, legally and technically, that the attorney general's approval was required? Because regardless of, the of whether, of assets? yeah, it's a great question. Uh, regardless of whether it was required or not, it was advisable, and we talked with them about that. And I, I wanted to emphasize that consultation with governmental officials is critically important. David talked about it a little bit, but we kept the attorney general's office informed all the way through because they had originally approved the initial dissolution and transfer. So we didn't keep them informed with every nuance and every detail of what we were thinking, but when we were coming to a decision point, we would go to them and say, here's what we're thinking about doing, and we'd like to get your reaction before we move on and do it, so that if you have any objections, we know about it now, rather than knowing about it from a complaint that is filed by somebody. I, I will say the primary issue with the AG2 is whether there's some public controversy around it and whether there's an objection being expressed. We have had an objection expressed in the past about the a deaccessioning from Clifton and we responded about how our deaccession complied with the ethical standards and they accepted it and approved it and moved on. So I guess, Oh, well, my quick question is um, how, much, how much did it sell for?
1: <laughs> it was listed at 499000 and it sold for 550000 Oh,
0: wow.
2: And the tax assessment was $3.26 million? is yes. that right? Yeah. The tax, that's why we appealed the tax assessment. Sure. It was, as long as we were holding it and it wasn't subject to tax, it didn't really matter. But when we were getting ready to sell it into private ownership, suddenly it mattered a great deal. <laughs> right. Um, and I guess how much, how much of that was the ease, easement endowment, right? How much? Uh, the easement endowment, I don't remember the precise figure, but it's about
1: $80,000. About uh, $86,000 oh, yeah. uh, to ensure it in perpetuity. And what, yeah. what that easement endowment gives is belt and suspenders protection. OK, that means you can't subdivide the land. All right, so some of the designations with the local authorities like the Philadelphia Historical Commission mean you can't tear down the building. But the land and, and, the, and also the, the other historic designations, the national ones don't matter at all or prevent demolition. But the Philadelphia historic designation protects the building but not the interiors. So the easement protects the land and the interiors. So we really felt a, a kind of umbrella of protection. And I would also say that among the nine offers, we got a lot of offers that wanted to make the building a kind of house museum. You know, some of the, the uh, proposed uses were a gallery space where the community could have meetings and discuss history. Uh, and so I, I just want you to know that there's a sense, I think, of beautiful places should be shown off. And in an era of house concerts and pop up beer gardens on private space, It it is something to consider as we uh, often sort of uh, poo poo the House Museum as stodgy. It is also a a, um, a kind, there's a, a resonance of the concept of it in the popular American imagination that is undeniable. I guess. The,
2: the I wanted to add one clarification about the easement endowment too. Our easement endowment is calculated so that it will kick off an income, a payout essentially adequate for us to monitor the property once a year, visit it and make sure it's still uh, being protected and preserved. And also it's got a uh, little bit for enforcement cost in case that's ever needed.
1: I, I, I mean, this is, I mean, it's amazing,
2: just like the process that you've taken, the thoroughness of it. Um, and it clearly required a lot of resources of the National Trust and and Cleveland and time. Um, so I guess my question is kind of, have you done this, do you do this elsewhere? Have you done this elsewhere? And, or if, if not, then would you do it again? <laughs> so um, I, uh, it's a great question because, We talked with the AG's office expressly about the time and expense of going through such extensive process to do this. And for the museum field, I think that's a big concern that it would be very useful if we could figure out um, a more streamlined way to do it. I'm not sure that's completely possible because of the public engagement that's actually necessary. We have done this in a couple of other cases. Uh, There are a number of models that are in Donna Harris's book called New Solutions for House Museums. I think the one that's featured there from the trust is Casa Mesti. So that's a great resource. And David, did you want to respond to that also?
1: Uh, I would just say that, um, you know, our budget is $400,000 a year at Clifton. The staff is uh, Preservation Director Libby Hawes. She's full time. I'm full-time, the, uh, Carolyn is Carolyn Wallace, the education director, and then we have two regular part-time and we pay our seasonal guides. So when we're talking staff commitment, staff investment, it also meant something had to come out of the boat in order for us to put focus on this in the boat. What was it costing you to run the house? Could uh, you repeat the question? Uh, what was it costing to run the house was a, a, a thumbnail, I- about $20,000 a year in utilities, landscape, uh, and that didn't even mean, you know, the, the uh, insurance, you know, all, the, uh, all of that. It, it could have been higher, but then there were the projects, like the, the really serious mold infestation that, you know, th- that, that, that 20,000 was just operating and overhead, not critical priority projects. Yeah, or the custodian's time, or it didn't, it didn't include the, um, the question was, did it include the director's time or other staff time? It did not, uh, but uh, the overhead did include the security system, you know, and the phone calls I'd get in the middle of the night for the last 11 years. And, you know, these sorts of, the, the happy site management issues of uh, being a historic house museum director. Sandra.
0: So I know this process has been obviously lengthy, I mean, over 15 years. Um, from when the discussion started uh, with the Epsilon Foundation, and ultimately it's had a happy ending um, for the House. Would you go back in time, would you have accepted the House uh, when the discussion started, or would you have recommended this? Uh, like, what, what would you do different? Would you go through this whole thing again? I know it was an albatross in the middle, so I'm just kind of curious, your ultimate assessment of the process.
1: And you're asking me. Uh, so well. Uh, well, I know you weren't there when it was decided. So. I didn't see uh, Carrier Tom jumping in for this. And, I was
2: shying away.
1: Uh, well, uh, there's two things. I, I stepped into this job, and Upsala was the. What are we going to do? And we, we have a relatively entrepreneurial board and a visionary staff with that's done a lot of innovative work, and we couldn't make it work. So I think in the, if, I, if we had to do it over again, we would have been much more intentional about what the community wanted in 2003 and 2004. And frankly, in looking over the bowels of the Uppsala Foundation documents, which I did for several years, even the smart people at the trust or the, the Pew Foundation that were helping with the merger weren't, ask, weren't using phrases like community engagement, things that we wouldn't, we wouldn't do now. Um, And so that would certainly have been different. But I also think the impulse to preserve would have been there. And and in that case, you know, the, the cautionary tale is, could we be more proactive to get ahead of the issues? And I think that's the lesson that folks facing these kinds of issues in their own communities should look at, how to be strategic in addressing the problems and whether it will be there in 20 years if you don't have a plan and you have these deferred maintenance and you don't have a lot of annual revenue uh, from earned uh, sources and such. Um, those things, that the Upsala Foundation wasn't thinking strategically until this, the stern was five feet underwater. And that meant um, Cliveden, an effective historic site had this dumped in its lap effectively. So I, I think to be proactive would have been better, but frankly, we, we probably would do everything we could to preserve it and be as creative as possible because that's what we do.
2: I just wanted to add two thoughts to that. One is to remind everybody, it's directly across the street from Clifton. So there was a strong interest in protecting that context as well, and we had control over the the property so we could control the outcome there, and that was important. The other thing that I'm keenly aware of, and we talked about it as we went through the process, it just takes a community a long time to get used to the idea that a property is not going to be a historic house museum anymore. It's almost like... um, detachment process, or a revisioning process, or a grief process. Right. And it takes a long time for that to happen.
1: And it took a long time, and there were there were no objections. And even in 03 and 05 with the initial merger, that was three years in the going without any objections. And while there was a resistance to the idea of the trust selling Upsala in the last year or two. It was sparse, it was exceptional. For the most part, the community understood. It was still zoned residential. There was nothing for the Neighborhood Association to decide, uh, you know, there wasn't a huge change to return it to its original use. Its original use may turn out to be the best use after all. So in that sense, it even takes time when there's no headaches, no disagreement, no issues, no challenges. And no one from the Upsala Foundation raised a, a hue or a cry at all. So the, the the glacial pace is really about diligence and intentional communication and continual, reiterative engagement and message. And when my soul needs a lift, I listen to the voice memo I got from the city councilwoman when I uh, shared with her by email that we were given the green light by the attorney general's office that we could go ahead to sail because I said to her we got nine great offers and uh, we found somebody who's gonna give it the love and it is actually, um, the offers reflected the hard work we've all been doing as a community to create a pride of place in Germantown and we should all know that there was energy in these offers, there was imagination, there was preservation Excellent. savvy, there were cool people from Elfris Alley that wanted to do it, folks from Boston who had done it. And interesting ideas, and the, the public officials needed to know that, and she was so grateful to get that. She, said, I, never, I never get calls like this, so thank you so much, and good work because you did it in a way that all of us are going to benefit from. So when those um, that young couple opened up the property on Mount Airy Day and said, you know, their first gesture to the community was welcome, it spoke to just the the reward for all this hard work. Were they from the community? Were the the new owners from the community? Uh, No and yes. Uh, They are originally from Sarasota, Florida and they lived for a long time in Brooklyn where they had done preservation, restoration, uh, flipping houses there. Then also uh, upon moving to Philadelphia, they did so in the South Work neighborhood in the University City neighborhood and in West Philly. Uh, so the husband is a realtor and the wife is an architect and a preservation, in the preservation program at the graduate, uh, the graduate program in historic preservation at the University of Pennsylvania. So we knew that they understood what they were getting into and they, wanted, they got married last summer and they wanted to make Uppsala their home um, in, in what they already do. And it's been a win, win, win. Maybe not everything has to be a house museum the easement gives it, gives it protection and the right buyers give it the love. I have uh, two quick questions. So
0: you appealed the tax assessment. Um, oh. um, so you said you appealed the tax assessment. Did you do that before you put it on the market?
2: We did it during the process. So our realtor, one of the first things they said was, look, you got to get this assessment down or it's, people are not going to buy it. So um, so we did that during the process. And we had outside counsel to do that who specializes in it.
0: You had out, outside counsel appeal the tax assessment? Yeah. I, I'm actually in those, a lot of these processes. I'm like, oh, I'm done with that one and that one and that one. And now I'm, I'm moving on to some of the others. And I'm like, ooh, that's a good idea. I hadn't thought about the tax assessment yet. OK. Um, And then for potential buyers, did you have cost estimates of what it would take to rehabilitate?
2: Not a lot of that. The main thing we did to try to help buyers visualize things was um, Ashley did a draft up of where bathrooms might go. Um, The the kitchen space was pretty clear. They could do pretty much whatever they wanted to and and there was generous space there. But the bathrooms were a lot trickier so we had our in-house architect actually draw up some plans l- like that, but we didn't do. Uh, I think I don't. I don't recall
1: that there were any um,
2: cost assessments for specific things.
1: Well, um, to the point in 2000, in the 2005 strategic plan for Cliveden, it included an architect's estimates of Upsala, and he had previously served on the Upsala Foundation board. And he put uh, the, the need at about $1.1 million. And chipping away at it, it left thumbnail sketch guesstimate about half a million to do a quality rehabilitation, including modernization. But that was, that was guesstimate. It, no, it was our internal sense of what it would take based on what we had already invested to knock out some of those uh, tasks that added up to the $1.1 million. And to the point about restrooms there were no restrooms on the first floor for instance so you know key elements to modernize there's no there is there's no ADA accessibility so there were some key elements that had to be factored in.
0: Thank you. yeah we're, we're out of time we're actually over but thank you all for coming and uh, if you have anything else we're happy to stick around for a minute or two and, and chat. Thank you
1: so much for your evaluations.